Well, it's good to be back with you guys. Uh, well, actually, last Sunday was my first Sunday back, and who would have thought that I, I would be spending it with an axe, chopping down trees outside? And uh, man, we got hit 62 hours. My family was 62 hours without electricity and power, like many of you guys. And so, um, man, it, it, was, it was quite a dramatic week. But nothing compared to the dramatic topic we're talking about today, right, on apocalyptic literature. And my title is The End is Nigh. No, just kidding. I'm just, I'm just, no, no, I'm just joking. Um, and hey, some of you are brand new and around for the first time, and you're like, oh my goodness, my first Sunday, or second Sunday here, talking about apocalyptic literature, the book of Revelation. So I just want to say that uh, this message is not officially endorsed by City Light Benson or, or uh, Pastor Jameson. So if you don't like it, you can come back next week and hear like a, an ordinary sermon, okay? Uh, so don't leave because of today. God has spoken and the rest is commentary, all right? As Paul said, take what I, take what I say and test it, all that good stuff. Um, but man, I'm, I'm here to be a helpful guide to you today. Our Bibles is where we go to for our source of inspiration for life. And there's all kinds of different genres in our Bibles. We can't, t- we can't see it oftentimes because our Bible looks just the same. Every page looks the same. But it's filled with these different genres. And we have to approach the, the different genres uniquely uh, or we're going to get it wrong. right? I'm not going to go on Netflix and watch a good drama and then interpret it all as fact. If I did that, man, that, there's a lot of things that are going to go wrong, right? So we have to interpret different genres differently so we can get the most out of our Bibles. Okay, so someone say apocalyptic. Now someone say, ooh. <laughs> so that's what kind of feels like, doesn't it? Like the book of Revelation, these codes, these numbers, these beasts, all this weird stuff. And oftentimes we get overwhelmed by it. We're thinking, I'm not, a, I'm not a nerd. I'm not a seminarian. I can't understand this stuff. And so what do we do? We skip. We skip it. We, we don't even go near it in our Bibles. And so today, I want to be a guide for you uh, to help you uh, help make Revelation in this apocalyptic genre, which is primarily Daniel in the book of Revelation, to make it super accessible and understandable so that you can engage it and get the most out of it. Does that sound good? Awesome. Okay, so where, where does the woo come from? Why, why are we so uh, caught up in this end times business? Okay, well, going back, there's, there's one man that really was a big part of sort of launching our fascination uh, with the end times. His name, uh, was, uh, his name was Hal Lindsey. Um, sorry, all I saw in my notes was, was Nicolas Cage. Because <laughs> I wrote down that, you know, if you guys remember uh, National Treasure with Nicolas Cage? Right, there's this code on the back of the Declaration of Independence, and he's, he's, he's trying to interpret this code and on this hunt for the treasure. And that's kind of what Hal Lindsey was uh, for his generation, as he took all these numbers and symbols from Revelation and interpreted it and told people what it probably meant or might mean in their day. So he made it, uh, made it relatable, saying, hey, this is happening in our time. So he said that the demonic locusts in Revelation were actually army helicopters, um, that the burning mountain in Revelation was a giant, a gigantic nuclear bomb. And so this was, this was big language for them because they were in the middle of the Cold War, right? Uh, the U.S. And, and Russia were competing to, to, build, to see who could build nuclear bombs the fastest. So really, people thought that we were only a few years away from the end of the world, from the apocalypse uh, happening. And how Lindsay said that he thought the end of the world was going to be in 1980. In the 19, oh, sorry, the 1980s. 
And so you have Bill Bright with, with Campus Crusade, which I was a part of. You have uh, Billy Graham. They're evangelizing to stadiums, right? And how Lindsay influenced, influenced them dramatically. And so the evangelism became a popular thing because people thought they were living in the end times and people needed to convert and come to Jesus as quickly as possible. So there's some good aspects to it. It lit a fire under people, but his, late, his book, Late Great Planet Earth, right, was a prophecy book interpreting Revelation and telling them what all these codes and numbers meant. And it was, uh, by 1999, it had been sold, it sold 35 million copies and was translated into 50 languages all around the world. And Hal Lindsey said, unless you are interested in the future, then don't read this book. Because this book is not about the present, it's about the future. So people are fascinated with it, fascinated. And that's actually the book that teed up the Left Behind series being so popular. Do uh, you guys remember the Left Behind series with Kirk Cameron? I love that movie. It's like, wow, like, man, this is like a war. And I'm on the good side. And, and uh, it was so fascinating, so fascinating. And so Hal Lindsey was one of the guys that... that led to the success of that, that movie. So my goal today, like I said, is to take the mystery out of it, to, to not see, the, see it as an end times manual, but something that's accessible for you and for me to glean from today. So we're gonna look at three incredible discoveries today. The first is that apocalypse does not actually mean end times. Second, that God is a drama king. And third, that apocalyptic literature is for dummies. Anybody remember the book series for dummies? Yeah, it's for dummies. It's for you and for me. It's the, the book of Revelation is not for uber smart people that are in seminary. It's for you and for me. Right? And as a bonus, this is a limited time offer only, I'm going to tell you what I think the mark of the beast is. Okay? So I know you guys can't leave, uh, but I'm primarily speaking to the people online. Right? Stay tuned in to hear about what the mark of the beast is. And spoiler alert, it is not a COVID shot. Okay? Not a COVID shot. Um, so, or the chip on your credit card, okay? Or a chip inside you, all right? Um, okay, so <laughs> we're going to be anchored in Revelation chapter 1. Uh, again, this is what most people think of when they think of apocalyptic literature. Uh, and it actually is, creates a lot of footnotes from the Old Testament. All right, so Revelation chapter 1, you can turn there in your Bible or, or turn there on your app. We're going to be in verses 9 through 16 primarily today, and then kind of jumping around a little bit. But here's what it says in verse 9. It says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, in the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it. To the seven churches, that's Ephesus, Smyrna, to Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Right, so we learn a few things just from these verses. So first of all, we have the author who's the Apostle John, and John was being persecuted. Uh, the church historian Tertullian said that John uh, was actually, attempt, they attempted to martyr him by throwing him into a large pot of boiling oil. Uh, that's how Nero was, was, was treating Christians back then. And so uh, it did not work. He came out miraculously okay. And so the emperor sent him to this island of Patmos, uh, which was like, uh, remember the rock. You know, it's, it's this place where you get put in solitary confinement to live out the rest of your days. So that's where John is. He's been persecuted, uh, attempted murder, and he's on this island when he gets this revelation from God. And he says that he's writing, uh, God wants him to write this letter specifically, not to us, but to seven local churches. 
like us back in the first century. So it was written to people back then to deal with their circumstances then. Are you with me? Okay, so seven local churches. And he says that he's sharing in the tribulation with them. Not a future tribulation, but they're undergoing tribulation right then and there. And that they were patient, he was patiently enduring with them. So that context is so, so crucial to understand that this was written uh, not to us first. It was written to them then, and they were being persecuted. And so this letter was to help them in a time of tribulation and persecution. Are you with me? Okay, so we have to understand what it meant to them then before we understand what it means to us now. Okay, so the first uh, discovery is that apocalypse does not actually mean end times. Right? The Old Testament word is galah, which means to expose, to reveal, to uncover. Uh, the New Testament Greek word for this was called apocalypto. Did someone say apocalypto? Doesn't it sound like an Ikea piece of furniture? Like, just look at this apocalypto table over here, right? <laughs> apocalypto. Or maybe, maybe like a modern, like a cool bar in Omaha, you know? Like, hey, come on to apocalypto tonight, you know? We're going to go dancing. It just sounds weird. <laughs> But listen to this helpful description of apocalypse by the Bible, by the Bible Project. Right, you can go online, watch videos of these different genres of scripture. You can get a lot of good resources from the Bible Project. Look them up on YouTube. All right, so it says, they say, in the Bible, an apocalypse is a moment in someone's life where God reveals himself in such a way that the observer is overtaken by a divine vantage point on life, their life, or human history. Right, these moments are almost always almost always involve altered states of consciousness, dreams, and visions as a result of practices like fasting, meditating, prayer, and isolation. In an apocalyptic moment, heaven joins earth in the mind and the heart of the visionary, and they are able to see reality in a way that others cannot. Okay, so in other words, an apocalypse apocalypse is sort of a vision, an unveiling, a pulling back the curtain where God allows you to see behind the curtain, to see what's really going on in your life uh, through a divine, uh, heavenly perspective. Are you tracking? Yeah. And so uh, these apocalypses are given to people all throughout the Bible. They're, they're not just given in Revelation, which is called the book of the Revelation or the book of the apocalypse, uh, but it's given all throughout Scripture. So let me give you examples. We see God giving apocalypses to crush obstacles that are standing in the way of the gospel. Uh, God gives apocalypses to comfort the persecuted. And God gives apocalypses, these visions, to, to people to commission them into their calling, to commission them into greater calling. Okay, so for example, they are to crush obstacles. Uh, if you guys know the Apostle Paul, before he was converted, he was named Saul, and he was the number one threat, the number one threat to the early Christians. He was persecuting them, he was condemning them, he was putting them to death. And so God shows up in an apocalypse one day, in a vision, knocks Paul off his horse, right? Knocks him off his horse and says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then God converts him and he becomes probably the best evangelist that the world has ever known. It's amazing, right? He crushed up Paul as, an, as a threat and commissioned him at the same time. Uh, second of all, uh, God gives apocalypses to comfort the persecuted. So in Genesis 28, uh, Jacob, if you remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob was running for his life. His brother was on his heels. He was about to die. And then he has this vision. Right? We learned this in, a lot of us learned this in Sunday school. Jacob, Jacob's ladder. He has this vision of a, of a ladder stretching from heaven to earth. And there's angels ascending and descending on this. And it's called an apocalypse. And, and God does it to comfort him. 
Say, hey, your, your life is not going to be taken by your brother. You're, you're on holy ground. You're going to be blessed. I'm going to protect you. And your, your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars. Okay? Uh, in Acts chapter 7, we read about a deacon in a church, a local church named Stephen. He is proclaiming the gospel left and right. So this Jewish mob comes after him and is going to martyr him. They all pick up their stones. They're ready to kill him. And in his greatest moment of vulnerability, right, do you remember, they, the, the heavens open up, and he says, look, I see the, the Son of Man, Jesus, sitting at the right hand of the Father. And his face just lights up and glows. And so in, in his greatest moment of fear, God meets him, gives him this vision, gives him this apocalypse, right, to comfort him in his greatest time of need. It's out of God's heart to want to, to comfort the, the persecuted. And then uh, he also uses apocalypses to commission the called. Right, people like Moses who are like, I don't have what it takes. I don't have what it takes. I'm not going to do it. And then he has an apocalypse of the burning bush, and God commissions him to go lead his people out of slavery from the Egyptians through the Red Sea to safety. Okay? Uh, another example of this is in Isaiah 6, when the prophet Isaiah has this vision where he's transported uh, to the throne room of God, and, and God is this mighty figure there, and his, his, the train of his robe is filling the temple, and there's smoke, and there's weird creatures, and there's all these things, and God uses that a vision, that apocalypse, to give him confidence to stand up and say, here I am, send me. Right? So God uses these apocalypses to crush obstacles, to com- comfort the persecuted, and to commission the call. So watch this. Apocalypses aren't for helping us to predict the future, they're to help us to be faithful in the present. Right? They are helpful to be present and to endure for Jesus right here and right now. Right? Apocalypses are not given for, for fun and games. They're not given for us to distract us from the mission, but to get on mission and to comfort and encourage people who are on the front lines. Right? In the present, right here, right now. Right? The second incredible discovery that we find is that God is a drama king. Right, so I know that's a little bit of a play on words. Uh, what, I, what I mean by that is that God isn't afraid to be a little dramatic. Right, Jesus said, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, you have no part of me. Right, he's, be, he's using dramatic language. That's just who our God is. He, is, he uses dramatic language. There's, the Bible has a flair uh, for the dramatic. And that's good news because God is not a boring God, Right? Why is it that we get bored in church, but then go home and turn on Netflix and watch these, these, these crazy, amazing shows like Stranger Things, right? That are like the book of Revelation. And we're like, well, this is good. But we go to church, it's like boring. Right? God is not boring. God is not boring. He is a creative God. And all the artists in the room say, amen. Amen. Right? So look with me at verse 12. We're going to read a little bit of this dramatic language. And don't, don't be put off by it, but be, be amazed by it. So verse 12, it says... This is John speaking again. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters." In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Doesn't that sound a lot like a Marvel movie to you? 
Like later on, we see that Jesus' robe that he's wearing is like dipped in blood. He's like this warrior. And he has this tattoo down his leg that says, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, right? And, and uh, he's like descending from heaven, like full pyro- pyrotechnics. Like, <laughs> like it's this dramatic, dramatic vision of Jesus. We've not seen this in scripture. This is radically opposed to a lot of the, the, the Jesus in the picture frames that we have. Just nice, you know, white, blue-eyed, just safe, safe Jesus, right? So God, God is here is trying to appeal to our imagination. He's trying to appeal to our imaginations, right? When, when Jen Young in our church writes poetry, or Meg Vilter, who is up here, when she writes a spoken word for us, or when Nina writes a new song for us, Like, those aren't just nice extras to have in church or extras to have in our life. Those things are absolutely essential for our discipleship. Why? Because we are image bearers of a creative God, right? The God who speaks in dreams, the God who speaks in visions, the God who speaks in symbols. Look at we have a symbol up here that has more meaning and more depth that causes us to fall on our knees, right? Than any other, than any, in a way that language cannot get at, in a way that mere words cannot get at, right? And so we have art. We have these dramatic uh, pictures that, that really help with the indescribable aspects of our faith, right? When mere words are just not enough, right? And that's why we have apocalyptic literature in our Bibles, right? God's not just after our minds. He's after our emotions. God is not just uh, ethical, but he's aesthetical, Right? He, he gets to our senses and our imaginations. Right? When we are going through painful circumstances and we are encountering great obstacles, sometimes we don't need a Hallmark card. Right? We need a vision of the Lord. We need to experience his powerful presence. Amen? Amen. Amen. So many of you know Michelle Sherlett. Uh, she is an amazing woman of God. She's going through ALS, ALS right now. She's been battling it uh, for, for a long time, for a couple of years now. And uh, it's just a daily fight. And she, more than any other person I know, has this courage to fight for joy, but as her body gives way. And she's an amazing example in our church. And uh, she, God uh, generously gave her a vision one day that just excited her heart. He gave us the vision, and she scribbled it down when she woke up. And, and uh, there, was, there was darkness and clouds on one side, and there was the sun on one side. And it seems very simple to us, but it meant the world to her, right? That living under the sun, living with God's joy, without anxiety, uh, was like living in his grace, like feeling the, feeling the sun. And, and on the other, other side was this, this stormy and this clouds and anxiety and fear of when you step out from God, when you step out from under his grace, those are the things that you experience. And so uh, we took that, those sketches and we commissioned a local artist here to basically use, use and, and steward her gifts to create this amazing masterpiece uh, of an image. I think we might have it up on the screen, maybe. There it is. And so uh, image doesn't do it justice. Uh, but on the right, you can see the storms and the clouds. And you can see her walking away from that under the, these beams of, of light, under God's protective grace. And there's these silhouettes uh, on, the, on the bottom left, and it's her walking with her husband and her four daughters, right? She said that her favorite place to be in the world is on the beach with her family. And so she's on the beach here, uh, getting out of the storm. She's walking towards the sun. And now she gets to put that piece of art up on her living room wall, uh, and she gets to look at it daily and draw courage and draw inspiration and draw comfort in a way that mere words cannot, 
Right? You yeah, see, like art and beauty is a part of God's plan for us to comfort and encourage. It comes in the form of dreams and inspiration. So now I want to talk about the third incredible discovery of apocalyptic literature, and that is apocalyptic literature is for dummies. Amen. Uh, how many of you guys remember those, the series, the, the Dummies books? This was really helpful before Google, okay? Uh, they had Spanish for dummies, car maintenance for dummies. I remember going to Barnes & Noble at Oakview, or not Oakview, Crossroads, rest in peace, and, uh, and got this book and then, and then took it to Caffeine Dreams, rest in peace, uh, and, and read it. And just it was so helpful because these books take complex things and they dumb it down for dummies. They make it simple. And so I want the apocalyptic literature to feel like that, to know that it's for dummies, it's not for seminarians or people or code breakers like Nicolas Cage, okay? <laughs> that it's for you and for me. So when you look at apocalyptic literature, it can be intimidating, hard to, stuff, hard to, to understand stuff. But I want to take, I want to share with you an, an approach, uh, an apocalyptic for dummies approach that will help learners at every level get something out of it, Okay? Uh, so first of all, you've got to get out of the mindset that all the dramatic language is, is only talking about the end times, because it's, it's not, all right? Uh, if you look at Isaiah 13.10, which is not going to be on the screen, uh, you might have heard some of this language. It says, for the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened in its going forth, and the moon will not cause its light to shine. So we've heard this language throughout of kind of the moon and the stars and the sun all kind of falling. And this is decreation language. So in the beginning, God creates and he puts things together and connects things together. But oftentimes the Jews, when they were talking about one nation conquering another nation or one nation coming and, and God using them to discipline God's people, they would use this decreation language like the sun and the moon uh, are falling. It doesn't mean literal falling. It's symbolic for the world is coming down. The world is falling apart, okay? And so when Isaiah said that in Isaiah 13, he goes just a few verses later to say that this event, with the heaven and the stars falling, it, he's pointing to the fall of Babylon by the Medes' army. So he's saying this, this is not the end end, this is, this is going to happen in our day, okay? Uh, the prophet Joel, you might remember this if you've been around church for a while. The prophet Joel said, The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. Now, when Jesus quotes, Jesus actually quotes Joel. He quotes this passage from the Old Testament in Matthew 24, 29. And he uses it to refer to the destruction of Jerusalem in, in, in 70 AD. Because Jesus says, This generation that we're a part of, this generation will not pass until all these things are fulfilled. Right? And the conversation starts with the disciples uh, hearing from Jesus that there's going to be no stone left that fall, that a, of the temple. There's going to be no stone of the temple. It's all going to come down. And he's referring to 70 AD. So this language, again, is not just some, so for the future, although I think it can be described for the end end, but just know that this, this, this type of language was used for events that were happening in their day too. Okay? The other important thing to know is that what's taking place in Revelation is not just one future story, but it's a part of an ongoing story since the very beginning. So going all the way back to Genesis, uh, you have the protagonist, you have Adam and Eve, and then you have the villain, right? That sneaky serpent, uh, a Satan that's in the garden. And God said that there's going to be this problem 
right? There's going to be enmity between the seed or descendants of the serpent, and there's going to be enmity between them and the descendants of Adam and Eve. So there's going to be enmity for, all, for, for, for the whole time that we're here on earth, okay? There's going to be enmity between both of these descendants, and so you can see this in Cain and Abel and the Israelites and the Egyptians and David and the Israelites and Goliath and the Philistines. There's always this, this, this battle going on from, from the beginning of time between God's people and those who are against God's people. Right? And this narrative happens over and over again. And so you see like these Satan, Satan-like demagogues, uh, right? like the Egyptians and the Philistines and the Greeks and the Romans, and they're always after God's people. Whether they know they're working for Satan or not, Right? They're, they're, they're part of his plan to push back and destroy God's people. Right? And in the book of Revelation, though, we see the snake appear again. So after all this enmity is happening over and over again, at the end of Revelation, you see Satan, not as a nice little garden snake, but you see him as a big, giant beast right, with horns and multiple heads. And like I said, it, it sounds a lot like Stranger Things. Right? You got, just like any movie like Stranger Things or show, you got the enemy starts small and then he gets bigger and bigger and bigger and then finally he like evolves. Right? Anybody like Pokemon in here? Like my son? Uh, Pokemon people might get this, but he, uh, Satan evolves. Right? He mega evolves. He, he, in Revelation, we see him in his final evolution. Right? This gigantic, ginormous beast. Now, this, this signifies um, that, that, that there's something going on. Right? God gives them this vision in Revelation. He pulls back the curtain, and they see that they're not just in a battle with flesh and blood against Nero and the Romans. God is, God is showing them that they, they're a part of this grand story that has been going on since the beginning of time. That they're not in a struggle with the Romans. This is not just a flesh and blood battle. This is, they're part of a cosmic battle that has been going on, and Satan is behind it all. And he's like this ginormous beast. And they feel... That. They feel like the enemy is a lot stronger than them, right? Think about it. Put yourself in their shoes. Like your, your mom uh, or your dad could have very well been martyred by the Romans, right? Thrown to the lions in the Colosseums. That's what the emperor was doing, was, was throwing Christians in with the lions. Uh, they, were, they were burning people at the stake, right? This was their, this is their world. This, this is the world of these churches that, that John is writing to, right? They, they have lost loved ones, they, they, they're a part of a ragtag group called Christians. Right? There are a few, there's thousands of Christians, but that's thousands for the whole world. Like there's still a very small minority, and they're wondering if, if Christianity is going to get wiped out, if their faith is going to get totally wiped out. So the enemy feels like a multi-horned, multi-headed beast that is going to devour them at any moment. And so that's why John gives them another picture. Right, all throughout these apocalypses, throughout Scripture, there's one like the Son of Man that shows up. And then when we get to the New Testament, we find out that the Son of Man is none other than Jesus himself. And he gives them this beautiful picture of Jesus coming down, not, not shepherd Jesus, but like strong Jesus. Like Elvin says, he, flex, he flexes. Right? There's a strong Jesus of a tattoo, right? and a sword coming out of his mouth, and this just amazing picture of Jesus who's come to defeat the beast, who's come to defeat their greatest enemy. Think about how encouraging that would have been for you after losing your family members and friends, wondering if you're gonna lose your faith, 
Right? He gives them a picture of a strong Jesus, one who is powerful than their enemy, more, power, more powerful than any earthly enemy, one who can stand victorious, right? And that's, that's how the story goes. The, the, the book of Revelation, the theme is Jesus wins. Jesus wins. And so let, in closing, let me just give you two reminders. I'm going to have the band come up now. In closing, let me give you two reminders on how to approach apocalyptic literature, okay? First of all, study apocalyptic literature as a lens, not as a code. As a lens to look through, not as a code to decipher. Or look at it through the lens, through a movie lens. Right? Movies are not always sequential, are they? If you look, me and Lindsay are just watching a show right now where it shows a scene through the eyes of one character and then it goes back, rewinds, and shows the same scene through the eyes of another character. Right? And so one thing you need to look at, look, when you're looking at Revelation, you've got to realize is there's different camera angles as you go along of the same event. So if you read it linearly like we want to, uh, it's, it's going to go wrong. It's going to go badly for us. So we've got to approach, approach it more like a movie than a, lit, a literal sequence of events. Okay, second of all, much of apocalyptic literature is symbolic, not literal. And so you have to look at Revelation through the lens of a, of a first century Jew. They were very symbolic. Even their, their uh, literal uh, numbers were symbolic. So for them, one represented unity. Right? Three represented completeness. Six represented man, rebellion, or incompleteness. Seven represented perfection or completion. Uh, Twelve represented perfection of government or church. Right? Twelve tribes of Israel, um, things like that. Forty uh, equaled a time of consecration or a period of trial. Think of the Israelites' 40 years in the desert, or Jesus' 40 days being tempted in the wilderness. But they weren't always literal years. They were figurative for seasons and periods of time that you'd go through. Right? And so when you're, when you're reading Revelation, it, we can get really goofy. <laughs> we can get really goofy to say, hey, this, th- this number three means three years. And I, I'm thinking the three years is going to be starting this time. You know, We, we, we can take things uh, literally when the Jews would have interpreted them symbolically. Okay? Uh, for example, like I said, we're going to get to the mark of the beast. For example, we can do this with the mark of the beast. Uh, the mark of the beast, or the number of the beast, 666, is found in Revelation 13. So Revelation 13, 18, we read, This calls for wisdom, but the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of man, and his number is 666. So think about this through the eyes of a first century Jew. Right? He's saying, hey, for those of you who have some understanding, like, go and calculate the number of the beast. Like, go and calculate it assuming that they could, right? He says that this number is a number of a man, and the number is 666. Well, the Greek name, uh, Nero Caesar, who was persecuting them, if you take his name and put it into Hebrew letters, uh, and by the way, Hebrew letters had numerical value, like A, B, C, that doesn't equal one, two, three, four, but there's no, there's no numerical value to our letters. But in their Hebrew system, the Hebrew letters equal numbers, And so if you actually put Nero Caesar's Hebrew letters into the numerical value and add them up, what number do you think you get? 666. 666 equals Nero. So what I'm trying to say is that what what God was telling them to do then might not be what he's telling us to do now. We get goofy, and we can can do goofy things with the the book of Revelation. We can start guessing as to who the Antichrist is. 
We can start taking guesses. Uh, for example, in 2013, they did a poll. 20% of Republicans thought Obama was the Antichrist. <laughs> but hey, I'm not just speaking on Republicans. 13% of independents and 6% of Democrats also thought he was the Antichrist. So you see how we can get goofy when we start thinking that this is for us and we can calculate the mark of the beast and do it? No, just tell your friend to stop, okay? If they're doing that. Tell your basement blogging friend to stop, okay? It's not helpful, right? They're not talking about the future here. We're talking about faithfulness in the present to Jesus, right? And the second and final thing is that we need to study apocalyptic literature, not to predict the future, okay, but to be faithful to Jesus now. Right? Just, a, just a reminder, uh, we can, we can get a Cal Lindsay into this mindset that the end, that we are finally in the end times, that we are the generation that's going to be the last generation on earth. And every generation prior has always thought that. Yeah, when you're in World War II and the world is literally fighting with each other, it'd probably be easy to think that you're in the last days, right? But what that leads to is withdrawing from culture by creating end times maps, right? And wasting your time. But Jesus doesn't want us to waste our time, but to steward our time to love God and love people. Not to be goofy, right? To be on mission and encouraging other people to be on mission. Uh, Missions Frontiers magazine said that 600 Muslim converts, they, they, they did a study, and they interviewed 600 Muslim converts, and, they, and out of all those, the people they interviewed, one out of every four said they experienced a dream of Jesus that led to their conversion. Isn't that amazing? God is still giving apocalypses today. He wasn't done with the book of Revelation, but he is continuing to give apocalypses today. One out of every four Muslim converts said they had a vision of Jesus. That is amazing, isn't it? That God is still working around the globe. Uh, Darren Carlson, and this will be my last story, he's founder of, and president of Training Leaders International, and he shared one of these stories of a Muslim coming to faith. He says, one morning, a Persian migrant came at 6 a.m. And, and asked for a Persian pastor. He said, where's a pastor? I need to talk to a pastor. And he says, I had a vision last night. And in this vision, there was a, a man in white. And he said, I am the Alpha and the Omega. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's what he heard in his vision. So he goes to this, this pastor and says, do you, know, do you know who he's talking about? And so the pastor goes over and gets the Bible comes back over, opens to the book of Revelation and, and shows them on the page, Jesus saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And this man just starts to weep, starts to weep. And the man goes over and grabs another Bible and says, here, take this Bible, take this Bible. He says, but hide it because there's other people in the camp who will kill, literally kill you for believing in Jesus. And the man says, well, if, if this Jesus is who I see him to be in Revelation here, strong and mighty, then I have nothing to fear. Like, I know that Jesus can handle the enemies in this camp. And then he goes and he grabs 10 other people and brings them back. He says, they all, Pastor, they all need Bibles too. And so all these 10 friends get Bibles and they, and they walk away. And what an amazing picture of what an apocalypse is supposed to do. It's supposed to give us courage, that courage that God is greater than our enemies. That the message of a revelation is that Jesus wins. That Jesus is greater than all of our earthly enemies. That Jesus is greater uh, than ALS. That Jesus has conquered all of anything that can happen to us in our circumstances. That Jesus is greater. Jesus wins. And so, church, let's worship the Jesus that we see in Revelation today. Let's worship him as the Alpha and the
Omega as the powerful one, asking him to give us visions, to give the people who are on the front lines visions, to give people who are hurting in our church comfort right now, not in the future, but right here and right now. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. God, pray that you would continue to give us visions and dreams. God, I know that your that English is not your primary language. And so unleash, unleash our creative potential to bring greater depth to a church living in shallow times. So thank you, Jesus, for giving us rich symbols like the cross to feast on for spiritual nourishment. God, give us divine power. Commission us to, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Right here right now. Help us to be good stewards of our time, that act wisely and think wisely and help your mission go forward, we pray. Amen.